sick, you'll drop your forehead on the sink because you didn't listen to the Stick to Wrestling podcast on time. Wait, usually I have a song that everyone's heard, but you have heard that song. That is X's Nausea, and that's the lead-in music that we use every week for Stick to Wrestling. If you don't, if you have not listened to X, go out and download Los Angeles, one of the greatest albums of all time. And you're listening to Stick to Wrestling. With that said, uh, thank you listening. I know there are a lot of good podcasts out there, but this is the only wicked good podcast out there. Give us 60 minutes, and we will give you a raw bone podcast. Uh, follow me, John McAdam, on Twitter. Uh, just look, put in the name John McAdam in the search, and bring up the two guys who are hitting each other with chairs. With that, I would like to bring on my convivial co-host, Mr. Sean Goodwin. Sean, how are you today? Uh, we're going in the way back machine back to the 70s. John made the unfortunate mistake of going, pick a show to <laughs> me. So, of course, that means you know, we're going to do something other than 1989. And in this case, you know, we're talking 1970. But before we get to that, just to let you know that we do have a Facebook group. We also have a YouTube page. Go figure. Yep, we have a little YouTube page, so uh, check that out. You'll have clips of the show on there and older shows that you can find on there. If you come on the Facebook uh, page, you could see the the newest links. You know, as Sweet Lou and Brian are nice enough to put up when they uh, they finish them up, they do a great job on that. You also on the Facebook group get matches from around the world, magazine scans from the fifties to the eighties, a uh, bunch of fans who have seen events from around the world. Pictures you've probably never seen before, John's daily results and listening uh, listings and just all the good things about Facebook without the unpleasant aftertaste. There you go. And yeah, I, I want to thank the Arcadian Vanguard Network for uploading our episodes onto YouTube. Here's what I'd like you guys to do. Number one, subscribe to the Stick to Wrestling podcast via YouTube. And number two, leave all kinds of flowery comments about how much you love this show. Yeah, all that. And if you could do that as soon as possible, it'd be awesome. As ASAP, as they said, the nineties. Indeed. All right. So and Sean, I, I kind of let, not let, but I mean, I asked you for a recommendation on the show we, we would be doing today. And I feel like you chose wisely. Let is a Freudian slip. Well, uh, okay. I, it is a very random show. And I picked it because of the people in it, because you have a lot of names who are either going to be stars, were stars, have been, you know, it's kind of an eclectic mishmash. This takes place on August 7th, 1976 at Madison Square Garden. We are and right at this point. Is this kind of the uh, apex for the Fed in the 70s this year? Um, Good question. I would have to say, well, I mean. 70, yeah, 77, 77 might have been. I mean, superstar Billy Graham sold out Madison Square Garden all but one time. Uh, 76, I know, was a good year for them, but 77 was an excellent year as well. They were on a roll. A lot of Bruno's popularity is, when you think of how crazy popular Bruno is, it's not from the first time. The first time, he was popular. But, I mean, if you look at crowds then, you would see the occasional six, seven, eight thousand. 8,000. It was from this era. Because when he came back, what was the response when he came back? It, it's it's out. This is when like the cult of Bruno seems to have taken off. Uh, yeah, it was almost like you know when you when Bruno was around for so long the first time, it seemed to get stale towards the end. And then I think after him being gone for three years, I think people realized how much they valued and missed him. What was the setup for him coming back? 
Oh, let me think. It's before my time, but if I recall correctly, um, I mean, they they brought him back. And when they brought him back, everyone, from what I understand, from what I've heard, everyone knew he was winning the title. Oh, uh, of course. Whose idea was it to uh, bring him back? Is it really the the deal? I know you say it's, you know, uh, Morales didn't sell anywhere else outside of the garden. But I mean, Morales really sold the garden. He did. Um, I think the problem was that that Morales was drawing weak crowds in places like Boston and places like Pittsburgh, Baltimore. And I think another problem is, and I'm not saying this in a racist manner at all. Uh, I think Vince Senior, you know, didn't would rather have a more eclectic group of fans than a, an arena full of Hispanics that are there to cheer Pedro Morales. Um, uh, what do you think his memories are of uh, Rocca? Um, I mean, that's the thing. Like, that's what I'm saying. I mean, is he sitting there like, am I going to run into you know? Is you know because he's you know he's remembering the riots and stuff like that yeah. from the late fifties. So I mean, was is that are those images coming back to him? Probably not, because as far as I know, there were there weren't any riots. You know, at the, at any of the WWF shows. Um, I just think that he he wanted to get to go with a. I mean, Bruno was very eth- ethnic. Obviously, Backlund mm-hmm. wasn't, but I think he wanted right. to go more that Italian type champion that would bring out. Uh, how do I put this? He might. I and mean, this is just my theory. He may have been looking for a more affluent audience. Uh, and well, Backlund, Backlund almost was, uh, as you said, he was almost so much of a. Uh, what was the word you used? I just um, he, it, it was almost like he was so much of a uh, kind of a neutral as far as this goes that he almost had its own kind of culture to almost per- own personality to it. He had that kind of little waspy thing. Yeah, he he was totally like non-ethnic, totally yeah. non-ethnic, and that's that's, that's it. One so reason why they wanted to go with him. Eth- he almost created his own ethnic kind of thing. He was so, you know, neutral in the man in the regard. So, yeah. why did I pick this uh, show? Because again, you asked me to, you know, pick a show, and I probably regretted it soon after. Um, honestly, I love the MSG, uh, the HBO shows. Uh, it's like it's so different from back then because at least in the Northeast, everything was taped. You never really saw anything live. This was the one example of it. Um, was there, did they have any other live product aside of this? On HBO, not not that I'm aware of. I don't think so. I mean, at all. I mean, yeah, no, I mean I, HBO was was primarily movies. I mean, they were really going off the script, by at the time by putting on pro wrestling shows. It was it was strictly well, movies. Well, what I'm also saying is that did the WWF have any live programming at this point? Um, no, just this. Yeah, and so this it's was, an entirely different feel. Yeah, and they only had the shows from Madison Square Garden. The Philadelphia shows didn't start uh, on Spectrum until 78. The Boston Garden shows didn't start until 1985. Yeah, and uh, and HBO was different at this point, as you said. I mean, they were kind of – it was like ESPN in the early 80s. You know, you'd find like, you know, skateboarding tournaments and they're kind of finding their way a little bit. So you would end up seeing a wrestling show. It's not that. How did they do? Who produced it? Did they just kind of produce it themselves and give it to HBO? You know, that's a good question. I have no idea. But one thing you talked about, and I'm getting a little bit off the subject here. Mm-hmm. People talk about like, you know, the AWA. Oh, my gosh. They were on ESPN. 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 
the the ESPN that existed in like 85, 86 does not at all resemble the the ESPN that exists today. I mean, ESPN didn't have Major League Baseball until 1990, and that was the first major sport that they had. And we were all a little bit blown away that MLB would kind of lower themselves, quite frankly, to be on a cable station like ESPN. Well, ESPN, by the end of that decade, had all four major sports. But yeah, back then they were showing like college baseball and like you said, skateboarding tournaments, Canadian Football League was their big draw. I mean, it just didn't resemble the ESPN that, that exists today. And that's exactly what you were getting pretty much with HBO back in the 70s. Because, I mean, what what the hell is this? A cable? No one ever knew what any of this stuff was. So, I mean, they were basically kind of defining what they were. Were there any other cable stations back then? The movie channel was big. Uh, that's the only one I can think of that was big. But basically, they would run movies that had been in the – their big draw was running movies that had been in the theater like five, six months ago. Uh, so – but yeah, it's an entirely so. It, it's not as unusual as it looks to see them on there. But I, I it had the next time they had program. They remind me of this was when they went to Saturday night uh, Saturday night's main event. Okay, yeah, that, that's actually that's actually a good a good comp. And um, Vince is your host. If you're thinking of Vince, the crazy loud Vince from the '80s and not, well, more the '90s, uh, n- not this guy. This guy's different. He's—I actually like this guy as an announcer. Uh, he tries he to takes be a little very, bit like Howard Cosell. Yeah, he looks like a like a like a mash of Howard Cosell and like Gordon Soley, except he really doesn't do it each as well as the guy obviously does it. But uh, he, he, it's a lot more serious. He doesn't feel like – I don't feel like he's insulting my intelligence like I would with like Bill Marser. It, it, he's fine. Uh, yeah, at no point do I sit there and think, oh, this guy's a clown. I can't have you – know, at no point do I hear – later on I would. But in the oh. 70s, I thought he did a good job. Oh, same here. In 1984, Vince McMahon you know, completely changed the product and completely changed his on-air persona. And I also noticed like they're doing a one-man booth, which I never liked. It's one guy just talking to himself. But McMahon did a really good job keeping it, keeping it moving throughout this card. Like he at really no does. point did I say, ah, oh, he needs someone with him. Well, and Vince also had this little thing he would do on the MSG cards where if he was kind of whatever, – for whatever reason, he would just start randomly talking to, to like one of his buddies who happens to have some you know, some businessman. One guy was some diamond salesman or something. Oh, and yeah. Just, what do you think of the card? Oh, yeah, really? Yeah, that's good. Yeah, this is on uh, 42nd and uh, you know, whatever avenue. Yeah, he has a nice store over there. So it's – they very much feel like they're winging. How much did he have behind the scenes, uh, Vince, at this point? Uh, probably a lot because he's the announcer and he is the owner's dad, uh, son. So you got to figure that – and Vince was always kind of a, a big guy. So he, he probably had a lot of pull in the company. Like he was someone you wouldn't want to piss off. How, how much would the – how much would the – what would the comparison be between Triple H today? Oh, not you know that's a that's a good comp but at the same time i i just don't like vince vince senior like let go and he eventually just gave everything to to vince junior i mean vince mcmahon to this day i mean in he has not let go 
I'm not sure. Also, I'm not sure if Vince was considered the heir apparent yet. He'd just taken over for uh, uh, Ray Morgan maybe four years earlier than 76. Um, I, was he really taken seriously as the guy before Cape Cod, before he took over the, uh, the Cape Cod building? It, uh, that's hard for me to say. I, I don't know firsthand, but I mean, if, if you sit down and think about it, I mean, it, it's the owner's kid. The owner is getting older. Ch- you know, chances are who's going to be in charge of this someday. Mm. But it almost seemed like maybe that's what he's thinking, but he's like, I need to see you that you can do this. I'm not giving it to you because he also knows that he's not the only owner and he has other owners there who are, you know, been around a long time. True. True. Uh, uh, excuse me. Monsoon had points. I think Skolan had Skolan points. Did. I missing anyone else? Uh, I think Wally did too. Wally? Wally uh, Gilsenberg. Oh, well, Willie Gilsenberg. Willie Gilsenberg. I'm sorry. Willie Gilsenberg. Yeah. In New Jersey. Okay, yeah, I'm, I've never heard that before, but it's very possible. But again, these are all guys who've been around the block a million times. So you're basically sending somebody into a, a little, you know, uh, until a den of wolves if they're not ready for this. So it seems like he's kind of in the process of getting him ready, understanding the TV. I bet he had a lot to do with the TV. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, and then kind of that's then it was a progression. I think it was uh, Cape uh, the the Cape Cod Arena. That he ended up buying into in the late seventies was another kind of step forward in showing his you know worth, and he, Vince seemed to understand this too because he was playing the game. Yeah, he he managed, he owned the Cape Cod Coliseum and he owned the hockey team, the Cape Cod whatever they were, and we would have to sit there for ten minutes. Um, Vince would just put advertise his hockey team on the wrestling show, and we'd miss a match every week. Hey, you know what? Cape you know, Cod that? Crusaders, that's who they were. So, um, but that's another reason. So I just, it's a, it's a good era for them. It's an interesting era for them. And you have just, again, you have a young Kevin Sullivan, the selfie cop version. Uh, you have a young Bruiser Brody, pre-monsoon scuffle. Uh, you get a hot Bruno Hanson match, which it doesn't get any better than that. So, oh, I, I this, this. This looked like a it's like a fun card to spend the evening with, and you can obviously get it on the network. You have twenty two thousand here, so I'm guessing the felt forum was in play. They mentioned uh, that the felt forum. There were people watching in the felt forum. Yes. You ever been to the felt? I yeah, I would never, and I think it would have been really cool to take in a wrestling show from the felt forum just to see what the experience is like. But let me throw this in too. This is right when I fell in love with wrestling, and I would have given anything as in a ten or eleven year old to have seen this, uh, to have seen the Boston Garden version of it. Um, you know, they had Bruno and. Hanson in the cage match in the Boston Garden. Uh, I think it was November 76, and I begged my dad to take me, and there was absolutely no way. Um, but, yeah, this is when I first started getting into this. And, I mean, think about the first time you started getting into anything, whether it be music, baseball, whatever it is, and you're first discovering it. This is the show for me that would have probably would have encapsulized that. And I mean, if someone had told me, Hey, don't worry about it. You know, 20 years down the line, you will be able to see this show. Like I would have taken that. I, I obviously I wasn't aware of like VCRs and I certainly wasn't aware of, you know, a WWE network and being able to see this show sometime in the future. So that's pretty cool. 
So, uh, okay, we again twenty two thousand. I, I just, I whenever I, you know, it's a big crowd when they say the fell floor. It's like, all right, it's a, it's a big deal. And how, uh, how exp- I wasn't there for the time, so I don't know firsthand what it was like. Explain to me what it was like for the fan base when the broken neck happened. Oh, man, this is like I said, this is when I first started getting into it. Um, They never showed it. I don't think they ever released the footage of the body slam until they had the feature um, when Bruno passed away. I mean, that body slam was unbelievable. He just put Bruno into the mat like a dart and you you couldn't be surprised what happened. But anyway, uh, I mean, the people were so... To say they were so mad at Stan Hansen is an understatement. I mean, Stan had to feel like his life was in danger only because it was, you know, I mean, and and the world was crazy back then. You could have some half mafia guy like going after Stan Hansen with a gun because he's that mad that Hansen did this to Bruno. So there's your background. We're heading into MSG, and your champion is Bruno Sammartino. He has been the champion since December 10th, 1973. Your tag team champions, and we'll get to them in a second, the Executioners, who won the championship on May 11th of 76. Your number one movie was The Omen, the number one song of the week, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, with Elton John and Kiki D. And the number one TV show, All in the Family, back in the Wayback Machine, your opening match, Jose Cadiz and Johnny Rivera. I have no idea who Jose Cadiz is, and he got a lot of offense. Okay, coming into this, I had never heard of Jose Cadiz before. I had not seen his name mentioned in a magazine or anything and I'm sitting there, you know, when the match comes on, I'm wondering how did this guy get this once in a lifetime opportunity just to be on the Madison Square Garden show? Um, but then the match starts and he's not a big guy, but he is a good wrestler and he knew how to be a heel. He was really effect- effective as a heel. I cannot help but think that he just went under a different name somewhere, wherever else he went. And he was Jose Cadiz for one night at Madison square garden. If anyone knows the story behind this, uh, Jose Salas Rodriguez, maybe, uh, please help us out. Go to our Facebook page and tell us the Joe Cadiz, Jose Cadiz. I, I keep calling him Joe Cadiz. It's Jose Cadiz. And I have no background on this guy except for that one match, but he was really good. And Sean, what a coincidence. Don't go breaking my heart was number one on this date. I had no idea. Yep. But uh, another thing, um, could he a little bit reminded me of kind of a, a Eric Embry style? Kind of a very kind of old school heel style, but it was effective at it. Yeah, I, I mean, I since I watched this match and I watched it for the fir- really sat down and watched it for the first time three or four days ago, and you know, it, it's it's a real mystery to me now. Like, who is this guy? Because I I was impressed by him. Uh, Johnny Ro- Johnny Rivera won to no no surprise. Uh, Rivera was one of those guys who was just over. He was he was a. I think he was not even a jobber to the stars guy. He was a guy who won on television maybe once or twice a year, or he would get to team with Ivan Putski or Bobo Brazil on TV once or twice a year. And that was enough to differentiate him from like the real, you know, guys who do nothing but jobs like Frank Williams and Pete McKay. 
Okay. Um, next one up, we have Johnny Rods and St. Jones. Uh, again, I, I, I like SD at this point. Um, he's because uh, I, I, I remember seeing him in mid eighties, and he just he seemed very slow at that point. But then I saw him back around seventy eight, seventy seven, uh, and it just it, it, he was even in the early eighties that seemed a little more you know he seemed a little more crisp. But jeez, even Vince with his you know. Well, I know they did it all the time, but SD would get some offense going, and then Vince would go, "There's SD Boogalooin," and you're like, "Oh, damn!" And you just you just kill him right there. Okay, couple of points I'd like to go over. Number one, I absolutely loved matches like SD Jones and Johnny Rods because on TV every week, almost every week. SD Jones would be matched up against, you know, I don't know, Baron Von Rasker or Stan Hansen, and you knew who was going to win that one. Johnny Rods would be up against Bobo Brazil or Ivan Putski, and you knew who was winning that one. But now that they're matched up against each other, as a kid, I, I wanted to know who was going to win. And this was a good match. This might have been the second best match on the card. It was a very good match. Rods was always good. Uh, and not only that, but Rods had those tights that were made out of the back of the set of the uh, Electric Company uh, kid show. Do you see those tights? My God. His Java um, Rook tights from when he got a push in Los Angeles briefly in 1976. But here's something I think you'd appreciate, Sean. Number one, um, SD came back in 1981 all jacked up. I mean, he looked like he had been living uh, on the bench press, noticeable gain in bulk. And I think obviously that helped him in some ways, but it hurt him in some ways because it took away all of his, his mobility. Yeah. Yeah. Slowed re- down. Absolutely. Yeah. And he remained with the WWF. Uh, he sh- came back in 81. I think he, he was still around until like 88. And, People liked SD Jones. I remember going to matches at the Boston Garden at, you know, at some high school or whatever. And SD would like, you know, finally get some offense in and the people in the crowd would start screaming at him. Get in there. Get him. Don't don't just stand there. And that was like his gimmick. He'd get some offense in and then he kind of clench his fist and blink at the guy and people at the live shows would go nuts like SD get up don't do this and he'd do it every time and, I mean but he, he was popular with the crowds back then I should mention during the first match you had a tradition that took place at MSG at every one of these shows which is of course Mrs. Krieger oh, has yes. to make her appearance uh, was that a range I mean it, it, it happened once every show yeah, I think I think uh, the w, Vince Senior had some affection for her. I mean, she was a character. She was always there. She was, got into it. Uh, so I, I think that was, I think that was the whole thing that Vince Senior just liked her. Another um, tradition they had at Madison Square Garden. The announcer on this show was terrible. The ring announcer. I mean, and and you could tell he was appointed by the New York State Athletic Commission. He had no business being a ring announcer. He would just be in there stumbling over words. And this is just another reason why I hate state athletic commissions because of things like this. Oh, that's a long-standing tradition. Up until they brought in Finkel. I mean, it was the guy, they would mess up the names. They would mess up the types of matches. They would have a little card in front of them. It's not like they had to memorize it ahead of time. 
and they would still mess it up anyway. I, one time, because uh, my, still my favorite was they were bringing back uh, Jack Lanza. And I can't remember. I can't remember. They, it, it, who's the old guy? The uh, the announcer who was like ninety years old. Oh, I don't remember his name, but I remember he was announcing at the Spectrum once. Oh, you mean Joe McHugh? Joe McHugh. So Joe McHugh gets up there and he's at the beginning. And the re- he gets there and he goes, and now we have Blackjack, La, and he stops, Lanza. And then after that, he just goes, La Lanza. Like, I don't care. I'm Joe McHugh. I could be wrong if I want to be. Screw you. Your name's La Lanza now. Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember in the Spectrum, I want to say 80 or 81, some guy who's on TV, I can't remember his name, um, but he, you know, he's wrestling at the Spectrum. Hey, it's kind of a big deal. And he calls him, he just misidentifies him. He calls him the total, the, totally the name of a different wrestler. And again, it's a, it's Pennsylvania. So it's a, a athletic yep. commissioner uh, announcer. It makes no sense. It's like Bill Mercer. They're not only bad, but they're arrogant about being bad. Yeah, because, you know, hey, I'm not working for the promotion. Exactly. By, by the way, Lou, just let us know I, it's, uh, we're on the air. The bulls are flying. It's my friend, Jesus Salas Rodriguez, not Jose. So I'm calling Jose, Joe, and Jesus. <laughs> Jose, I'm on a roll here, kids. We're doing well. Hey, you know, it's like I said, live to tape, live to tape. But, I mean, this was – a funny part about the beginning of the Raw SC Joe man, and it kind of tells you the different kind of ways fans are educated. So they start off with some mat work, which is standard operating procedure down south if you have a cold match, is to mm-hmm. do some wrestling on the ground. Vince has no – if this was Gordon solely, Gordon would have been in heaven. There would have been, you know, you know, move around, all this other kind of technical stuff that I don't know because I learned wrestling in the Northeast. And I don't know any of this because Vince didn't know any of this. And whenever you go to the mat, Vince is completely lost. <laughs> yeah, rarely did WWF guys go to the mat, but uh, Johnny Rods did, and he rode SD for a while. Um, one thing, too, about SD, right around this time, he has gone from a part-time guy who worked the Metro Philadelphia area shows, and now he's he's starting to work all over the place. So they've kind of given him, him a promotion. Well, it doesn't last too long. No, it doesn't. Uh, so uh, eventually, um, I don't want to give away the mystery for you since it happened this long ago, but Rods does get the win. They do that goofy double suplex thing. One guy gets the shoulder up first, you know, because that, that was important. SD got the win, man. It was, was, it was it? Rods that, that didn't Oh, have, yeah. That Rods got the up. suplex and SD got the shoulder up. Right. So SD got a win, you know. Yeah. Is, did, did Johnny ever get a win? Uh, yes, Johnny, like Johnny Rivera, he was like the heel edition of Johnny Rivera, where he would get like one or two wins on TV a year, and that would make him like a, a more credible than the other guys who never won. And next up we have, which ended up being an interesting match, uh, we have the um, the Executioners. Against Dom DiNucci and Jose Gonzalez. Is, okay, Jose and Rivera, is that the ex, uh, the um, invaders? Yes, they were. They were the okay, invaders so, in 83, early 84. Okay, so the executioners. Uh, that is a very old Killer Kowalski and a very young John Studd. Uh, how did the ideas for the executioners come up? Okay, this is what I'm guessing. Now, let me start by saying if you were a WWF fan for any 
length of time, which by this point I was not, okay? If you had been a WWF fan in 74 when Kowalski was there, how could you not know that executioner number one was Killer Kowalski? I mean, he was a really tall guy with that body, but wait, in 74 he was wearing a mask. He did the gimmick where he wore a mask and he said well it's to keep wrestlers from pulling my hair and pulling my ears and then he would put a foreign object in the mask of course the mask was really there so that walter wouldn't lose his toupee but then then i think about this some more i'm watching this match i'm like how did you not know if you were a fan for like three years how executioner number two was not chuck o'connor Honor because he's a tall guy with the same body and he's got the blonde hair sticking out of the mask. So, I mean, it was a, a thought, like I said, this show is from well over 40 years ago, but it was a thought I never had. Like, how could you possibly not know? How old's Kowalski here? Kowalski, I, I am going to guess he is 50. Yeah, because you can, you can easily find stuff from him in the early 50s. Yeah. On, on YouTube. So uh, he's got to be. I'd always basically I come up with the idea. I thought it was the same reason as uh, wrestling too. Uh, Johnny Walker went into the mask just because he looks old. But you're right. The body is just so distinctive. He has those long limbs, the huge rear end. I mean, it's, you know, that kind of curved back a little bit. I mean, it, you can't. It, it, it's like putting a mask on Dusty Rhodes. And like, oh, yeah, I don't know. did a couple of times. And right. by the way. Guess who but the deal the was that that was part of the joke of that gimmick was everyone right. knew Dusty. Then J.J. Dillon would come and flip it out like, oh, come on. You can't figure out who that is. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't here. quite that bad. But guess who won the pony? Killer Kowalski was exactly 50 years old on the, the day on this day. And throughout this match, I have to hear Vince going, gee, you can barely tell them apart. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Well, they they won the tag team titles by doing the switcheroo gimmick, so we have that. Uh, But I want to tell a story about the Executioners. In Wrestling World magazine, they – I remember this. They had a thing in their welcome to the magazine, and in this magazine, we have hidden the names of the Executioners. See if you can find them. Well, of course, I start looking through the magazine, and on the bottom of the page, right near the page number, on the left side, it says Killer Kowalski, and on the right side, it said Chuck O'Connor. And I'm like, okay, now I know who the executioners were. And immediately, it took some of the fun out of it. it was, part, of it was, part of the fun was never knowing who these guys were, and now I knew. Oh, I just I think it's almost them saying it reminded me of uh, that scene from WKRP where Johnny Fever accidentally said the contest is worth ten thousand dollars when it was only supposed to be worth a thousand. So he tried to cut the songs really close together when he did name that tune. Hopefully wouldn't get someone got it like five minutes into it. Uh, But there is no way. Okay, I can see where you would not know Chuck O'Connor. Maybe kind of. There is no way you cannot know that's Kowalski. There's uh, there's I, one way, and that's that's that I I never seen Kowalski before because I was that young. Okay, that that's different. But I mean, if you had seen Kowalski in against uh, you know against Pedro, uh, you know back in you know seventy one whatever it was, then that the body style is just so killer Kowalski. You know, it just it's just you know it looks like him. So uh, you have Danucci and Jose. I do not remember Jose Gonzalez being this short. 
Huh? No, I remember him being a smaller guy. Um, this was a typical WWF babyface team that they uh, threw together to take, you know, uh, for a mid card match against the t- the heel tag team champions. Because you've got Danucci, who's got a little bit of a push. He's got he was a former tag team champion, so that's never going away. And then you have Jose Gonzalez, who once again was one of these guys who won on TV two or three times a year, and the rest, and you know, he would occasionally team with like Ivan Putski or whoever, and that gave him enough credibility to where okay, he's not automatically going to lose every match but you knew coming in Danucci and Gonzalez had no chance of they were not going to win this match and they didn't again it's become it's like a north-south thing because there were just certain matchups as a northern fan that you knew that you weren't going to have a title change on it you didn't need cameras you just you could look at the th- you know like okay he's not going to win obviously yeah. but uh, they did give them a lot of um let's put it this way 10 minutes into this match I was looking for Bobby Heenan in the bag Chuck O'Connor gets slammed by Dom DiNucci with the 15 grand. <laughs> they actually, and they, they lost, it was a two out of three fall match. And one of the executioners lost by pinfall. Dom could have used 15 large, you know, back in 19, <laughs> back in no, 1976. So uh, yeah, Kowalski gets it. And in the first fall, you have your first, there's trouble in Trevor city. Which uh, was pretty much a tradition in every MSG show. Again, that Vince yeah. would always someone would be in trouble, trouble in River City. So that happened also. But again, it's uh, I mean, you needed it, it was strange because you needed like a, a Kowalski ended up getting the pin after getting the crappy out of him, and they needed like the uh, Dick Worley who was not one of his better efforts here. Um, Dick Worley getting distracted. I mean, it was like going out of their way to downplay this monster team. Were, were they trying to make them maybe look beatable? I, I can't see. I think that was just the way it was. They had the heels sell for the baby faces to make the crowd happy. I, I thought, I personally thought that they oversold a little bit. I mean, the executioners still are in the middle of a hot program with Strongbow and White Wolf at this point. So I, watching this match, I'm like, okay, they're just giving these guys too much. Exactly. That's why I was so surprised. I was, um, it, it just seemed... It seemed counterproductive for what they were, because but it also seemed like they were trying to back away from what they were doing with when they cornered themselves with the Samoans in 1980, when they had them beat everybody. So finally, they had to put a super team together to show that they was possible they could be beaten, because they basically wiped out their entire babyface tag team roster. You know what, though? I don't know if that's exactly how it happened, because you got to remember, too, Bob Backlund beat both of the Samoans in singles matches. So it's not yeah. like they are unbeatable. Yeah, I know, but that's different. Nah, it know, is. I mean, yeah, yeah. Again, this goes back to the whenever you see a tag team guy in with a champ, you, no matter how good the tag team is. But it, that is, it, but I'm, I'm, yeah. But look at that. He tried it with both of those guys. It still didn't work. So I guess they had to do it as a tag team. So I don't know. Maybe because they did give up a lot of offense to this team. I mean, I could see if they were in there with, uh, you know, with um, uh, White Wolf and Strongbow. But I mean, they gave up a. Again, the the first one was kind of almost a flukish fall. And then Kowalski takes a pin from Dom. Yeah. 
I yeah, and I, I guess in a way it didn't matter. I mean, Stud was his real life protege. I'm sure in a way he was protecting him. But just as an FYI, both executioners got singles matches uh, around the horn, not around the horn, but in certain arenas against Bruno Sammartino. Like I know executioner one got a title match in Long Island against Bruno. I'm thinking, did Dom slip somebody a little something something? I mean, Dom's <laughs> getting taken care of in this match. It, it probably has a lot to do. You know what? Him and Kowalski, I don't know what their relationship yeah. is, but they go they go way back. Yeah, I mean, they both ended up having teaching schools and stuff like that later on, so you could see where that kind of an interest would be between the two of them. I think Kowalski's uh, school is already open. I oh, think I been. could be you wrong can? about that. What's yeah, that? Yeah, yeah you may right. do. Um, so, okay, we have one weird spot. I almost forgot about this. Does... Uh, Something happens to Kowalski at some point in this match because there is a spot where Stud – I don't know if he got a concussion or, or he just got bad-winded or something. But there was a spot where Kowalski goes up to the top to do some, one of those double axe handle things, and he just came down again. He kind of slipped and just came down, and then you hear Stud yell over I, – I can't – I'm not going to say Executioner wanted to. Uh, you hear Stud yell over. He goes, you want to try it again? And he just kind of waves him off. I noticed there was a, a point where Stud and Danucci were like talking to each other, and Danucci is like, hey, are you okay? He said something to that effect. I like the match. They were Danucci was in the executioner's corner. His back was to John Studd, and him and Kowalski were talking to each other, and it looked really weird. Yeah, because so, so, and the match ended up ending a few minutes later when uh, Studd pins Gonzalez for the uh, third fall. But I would say they, Gonzalez and Dom got at least half the offense in this match. Yeah, to, and it was, it was actually a good match for yeah. what you would expect. Okay, and this I was kind of looking forward to. Uh, Bruiser Brody and Kevin Sullivan. Uh, Both are both. uh, Brody at this point kind of looks like he's kind of getting that, but Sullivan looks completely different. Oh, you know what? I wanted to talk about this. When someone brings up the name, Kevin Sullivan had a long career and he had a lot of different incarnations. But when someone says to me, Hey, Kevin Sullivan, this is the first Kevin Sullivan that comes to mind because it's the Kevin Sullivan I grew up with. He has that really stocky Kevin Sullivan body, not as muscular, but he has that kind of stocky and really round moon face, kind of short hair. And again, he's a a Southie cop is the best way I can put it. And with a little mustache. Uh, What what was the reception to him in 76 in, in WWF? I mean, he got a right around the same level push as a Jose Gonzalez, as a Baron Mikel Cicluna. I know he was popular around here because he was billed from and was legitimately from Lexington, Massachusetts. So he was on the witchy shows a lot. He was on the Boston Garden shows a lot. Did he ever work for Santos? I don't think so but i'm not sure um then again kevin i think he started in the business in 71 so the more i think about it yeah probably okay so uh, now brody's in the brody's about to get his big push. what is brody's background coming into this well this was the first time he was ever billed as bruiser brody uh before that he was in mid-south i uh i wanted yeah he was in florida as well as frank goodish 
Um, but Vince Sr. had a reputation of taking a young guy and putting an, uh, giving him an Irish last name uh, like Blackjack Mulligan, in this case, like Bruiser Brody. And yeah, so he was not a big star yet. He'd gotten a little bit of a push in Louisiana. He'd been to Florida. But this is the first time where, OK, this guy's a star. And you know what? Looking at him, even you know, if, I mean, I was I was young when this was happening, and I'm not going to say, oh yeah, when I was a kid, I knew this was going to be a, this guy was going to be a big star. But you had to look at Bruiser Brody and say, oh man, this guy has just limitless potential. He's so big, tall, and thick. How long did it take to get from here to Bruno? Bruno was his next opponent. At this time, usually. The the heel would come in. He would get a match like this against a mid card guy like Sullivan, and then go straight to Bruno. Yeah, this is usually where Chief J comes in. Very often, <laughs> I know what you're saying. Chief J gets slaughtered in two minutes, or not even two minutes, yep. get by getting sneak attacked, and Bruno would come out and to help him out. And the next thing you know, Bruno against that heel is being announced. Yeah, it, uh, the Waldo polished him off in 75 in about under 10 seconds. He just he flipped him into the ropes. He did the Ray Stevens bit, except nowhere near as graceful as Ray Stevens. And he ended up out on the floor, and that was it. Bruno came out to help him out, and as they're walking back, the announcement happens. So, yeah, it, it was a, it was oh, a well-oiled yeah, That's sheet. right. I forgot about that. So that's, that's basically so— no, they didn't even get him out back yet. You know, it's you know, that's what happens when you don't, you know, don't get the nice Christmas presents for the uh, the MSG uh, staff. There you go. But but, I, I but this was this was why just a, just as a reminder, this is why they would put the main event on early it was so they could have the announcement for the next card. But go ahead. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing I always wondered, and even like you know when I was younger, why they did not have a real program with Bruiser Brody against Andre the Giant because I think that would have been a huge draw. They did do Brody in six bands, a couple of six bands against Andre, if I recall correctly, at Madison Square Garden, but they did not do the singles match. And this isn't, you know, early 80s, mid 80s Brody where he's not cooperating and he's not doing jobs. I mean, he did a clean pinfall for Bruno around the horn and it's Andre the Giant. There's no you know, shame in losing to him. So I always thought the WWF missed a, a big opportunity by not having an angle on TV where Brody busts Andre up and, and they go around the horn. Monshu must have been really mad. Uh, that's that's uh, you know what that's actually a really good point. Brody didn't leave right away after the Gorilla Monsoon fight, which we had an eyewitness to here on this show a few yep. months back. Uh, but yeah, maybe you know they said, all right, well, Gorilla will make this up to you by not giving him that big money run. And Kevin ends up. It's uh, this goes two twenty nine. Obviously, it's gonna you know, um, and he goes. He gets uh, Lucas Torture Rack. You know, yeah, and I always, I never saw that as a finisher again between no. Brody using it at this point and Luger bringing it back in '85 or '86. Wasn't that was that the move that uh, supposedly Bruno got Rogers on? Uh yes, it was the exact move. I've seen the still photos. 
Okay. Uh, and speaking of the second half of the the upcoming tag team feud, uh, the Baron and Rocky Tamayo against Billy White Wolf and Chief J. Right now, they had already Strongbow and White Wolf had already had their first match against the Executioners at the Shea Stadium show, which took place the month before, uh, about six weeks before this event. So that that feud was already going, but obviously we're recharging these two teams, so to speak. You don't want to have the exact show that you had on Shea Stadium, so you give both of these guys a win. I I don't mean to overuse this this term, but both Sakuna and Tamayo were guys who got wins on TV. I mean, Sakluna maybe two or three wins on TV a year, and that's both the championship and all-star show. And Tamaya would get maybe one or two wins a year. And that was, it, it was just enough to get them, get us, the yeah. fans, to take them seriously enough. Keep them viable. And yeah. also Sakluna back in, like, I think in the late 60s, early 70s, he had a couple title shots, didn't he? He had title matches against Bruno at Madison Square Garden. Yeah. Um, okay, and this is another perfect example of the ring announcer stupidity. Uh, so this ring announcer starts off with uh, Billy White Wolf and and his partner, who needs no introduction, except this: he's Chief J Strongbow. <laughs> what? Goof. Yeah, Strongbow, and I didn't realize this until pretty recently. I thought he'd been gone for like two or three years. And no, he had been gone for less than a year. And he and before that, so he'd had like a five or six year run in the WWF. And he was gone for maybe eight or nine months. And according to Billy Whitewolf, Strongbow more or less demanded that he be allowed to return so that, you know, Billy Whitewolf couldn't steal the couldn't be the, the number one Native American guy in the Northeast. <laughs> Strongbow did not like Whitewolf. Well, I, there's well. I mean, I don't think White Wolf particularly liked Strongbow either, from what I understand. Oh, I'm, that, I'm sorry. That's what I meant to say. White Wolf did not like Strongbow. Oh. He made that perfectly clear in one of his shoot interviews. Um, and apparently, the the line for not liking Strongbow was. I was going to say. One. I was going to say uh, the other line doesn't seem particularly long, but yeah. So. Well, like, how how over was because this, as you have often said, these were the guys who kind of got you in the door, who made you the super fan. You know, as I kind of will joke occasionally, the this is the the tag team that sold a million VHS tapes. <laughs> it's uh, not even a joke. <laughs> so uh, yeah, um, but uh, what what was the appeal of these guys? Strongbow just had that charisma. Um, I mean, White Wolf, I, I, he was my favorite when I first started watching. We're talking like, you know, three or four months of fandom. And I just thought he was a colorful character and I liked the war dance and all that stuff. And Strongbow, when he came back, he just boat raced White Wolf. I mean, it was obvious who the big star was and the the ovation Strongbow got when he returned was just immense. It was incredible. I, Rocky Tamayo was around. I mean, since I started watching and then he would he he was he got away from the jobber to the stars thing. He just became a jobber and he became his appearances on TV became less and less frequent. I remember one time I want to say in early 79, he comes on and it's Vince McMahon and Bruno Sammartino doing commentary. Vince had just started doing commentary and Vince is like, what's this guy's name? Tomato. And Vince is like, no, Tomato. Tomato, right? It's like these oh. two are doing their 
Abbott and Costello routine without even knowing they were doing it. So that's my Rocky Tamayo story. But how long were they together, Style uh, White Wolf and Chief J? Because they seemed really popular, but they weren't together too long. No, they weren't. As a matter of fact, by the time they put the titles on Strongbow and White Wolf, they had become stale, much like the, the Strongbows did in 1982. Uh, they did this big convoluted thing where the strong uh, the executioners were stripped of the tag team titles because there was a third executioner, and they had this long combobulated made no sense tag team tournament that went on for, I want to say like two months on TV and the uh, Strongbow and White Wolf finally won the titles when uh, Tor Kamada and Nikolai Volkov were the other final team and Kamada got disqualified for throwing salt in Strongbow's eyes and, you know, White Wolf standing there with both belts saying, look, we won the belt and Strongbow's in agony, you know, holding his eyes because Kamada blinded him and by that point they had been around I want to say they won them in March 1977 they'd been around since like May of 1976 so yeah the bloom was off the rose by that point it's a perfect example of another guy that you were talking before that some fans just don't look at age is Jay I mean because he looked ancient he always looked ancient when he was at the WWF but no matter what he always seemed to be able to get over at least in Madison Square Garden even you know I know at the end he kind of got stale but even then he could pop a crowd occasionally I mean he's moving like Abe Vigoda even here (laughs) you know it never struck me that Strongbow looked old during this run and again that that probably had more to do with my aging but when he came back in 82 it was like uh oh you know this had better be the Chief J Strongbow farewell tour and it was yeah so um but well whose idea was to put the team together for this team do you know was there a story behind it or just one of those things that happened to hit I think it was one of those things where, I mean, Strongbow supposedly called and said, hey, I need to come back. And after that, he had had such a long run as a single. Maybe it was like, oh, you want to come back? Okay, well, we'll put you in the tag team with this guy. And they ran with it. And that's my best guess. Yeah. Okay. Now, really, this may have been this could have probably been the only match on the card and they would have gotten away with it. Um, oh, no, one other thing about that last part. Was there ever an issue when you have a tag? Because I thought of this with Tor Kamada and Nikolai Volkov, another huge team. Was there a size issue when you have like uh, uh, White Wolf and Jay and against these massive teams like those two or like the Executioners? I mean, is that part of the reason why you have to have them, the Executioners, sell? No. As a matter of fact, I think that is a pro wrestling staple that the good guys are the, are smaller than the bad guys noticeably, yet they're courageous enough to fight on and, and try to beat guys who are, who are, they are out way, way smaller than. I think that's a pro wrestling staple. And okay, we have a uh, so we have the main event. Again, the main event never went on final, uh, the last. It went on before the intermission. And again, we have the ring announcer who, you know, tried to explain the rules of a cage match, got confused, and then finally just said, if something happens to the ring, it doesn't count. So, again, I can't emphasize that these guys have a card in front of them with this stuff supposedly written down on it. Oh, Uh, you know, one thing, too, I I – 
own, it's, a, it's a tiny thing. I think this was after intermission because if you had a cage match in the WWF, it took place yeah. either right after intermission or it was the last match on the show. And I want to emphasize this maybe to our, our younger audience. I remember the day, I think it was in 98, when I saw that, you know, just on an episode of Raw, they lowered the cage into the ring and that's all they needed to do. Boom. Cages took 60 seconds for there to be not a cage. To There is a cage. These cages in the 70s and early 80s, they took a long time to set up somewhere between 20, right around 20 minutes, sometimes right around 25 minutes. But it was a sizable chunk of time. Yeah, but I kind of liked it because, again, it, it the way it was timed, it built the suspense to it. You saw them kind of tying it up. You know, it, it made it look like a bigger deal. The ordeal yes. it was to get the cage up. It was almost like a, a, a metaphor for the you know what was about to happen. And That's the best the part about the best part of it, first of all, Vince says that uh, Blassie was reluctant. I have no doubt. If I am the manager of Stan Hansen, then I'm reluctant to do this. But they're not even making bones about the fact that this is going to be an ass kicking. I mean, this is they're not even making. This is one of the few times I ever seen a cage match. I guess you see it with Bruno occasionally, where you actually it happens as it's supposed to. Not someone gets backdropped and accidentally falls through the cage, or you know, like the strap match and stuff like that. Bruno beats the. Tar out of Stan. Stan, okay, they have to do the. I don't even know why they did it. They did the leg tangled into the rope stupidity. But I mean, it didn't matter because Stan wasn't moving. It took like Stan another three minutes to move after the match. I mean, he sold this thing. And it was, this is how a blow off match should be. I agree 100%. You know, you and I have talked about how WWF cage matches, you know, like you said, they have a lot of stupid finishes. This was how to do a cage match if you're going to have those rules. As soon as the match started, Stan Hansen was trying to run out of the cage and Bruno would stop him. And I thought it was great psychology on Hansen's part that even though he's a big guy, he's still a chicken bleep heel. Also, they did the thing with Stan Hansen and the loaded elbow pad. More psychology that in the middle of the match, Stan seems kind of defeated. And Bruno takes that elbow pad away from him and starts beating on him with it and rendering Stan Hansen to an absolute bloody mess. I mean, his whole face was completely covered in blood. But they did an angle where... The elbow pad, Stan Hansen's elbow pad, was allegedly loaded. And Fred Blassie would be like, no, it's, you're making stuff up, McMahon. And they, were, they did an, an interview at ringside. And Stan Hansen showing you know, the lariat and what he's going to do, like has his arm up in a threatening manner. And Vince McMahon just taps the elbow pad. And a bunch of silver dollars come pouring out of it onto the arena floor. And everyone at... Everyone watching, meaning the, the live crowd in the arena, went nuts because now we have proof that Stan Hansen has this loaded elbow pad. But it was, it was the biggest clown spot in the world. All of a sudden, these silver dollars come flying out over a little tap, but it worked. It was completely one-sided, but within the context of what we're talking about, it entirely worked. Yeah, this is and, exactly what the fans wanted after what happened with the broken neck, and they're still mad about it, and you could not have any other finish. I, I bet Stan volunteered for this one. He's just like, you know what? I'm happy to take this beating, knowing that if he does anything else, he'll be lucky to get out of the garden alive. 
Yeah, really. Um, and he's lucky to get out alive anyway. And you got to remember, too, they had the match in April where Bruno legitimately got his neck broken. That was stopped on blood, and the blood was supposedly caused by Hansen having this loaded elbow pad. They take a couple of months off because of Bruno's injury. They have the Shea Stadium show. At the Shea Stadium show, Bruno is beating up Stan Hansen so bad that Stan just hightails it to the dressing room. So now we need a cage match in order for Bruno to get his revenge. Beautiful booking, except for the legit injury. Everything, yeah, everything makes sense. And, I mean, for those who complain about the Bruno style, the Bruno style is absolutely, it's like when you put the Road Warriors into war games. You can punch and kick to your heart's content. Go nuts. It works completely inside the context of the match. Same thing here. Bruno's style of just, you know, Bruno's like, this is like Hulk Hogan good guy stuff where he's thumbing the guy's eye. And and, uh, Vince keeps having to remind, there's no rules. I'm just saying, you know, I mean, you can do it. But it's, it's, this, this crowd is nuts. I was going to say you, even if you're not into old WWF wrestling, just check this match out. If for no reason to see the giant ovation that Bruno gets after he's defeated Hanson, after he's just said, you know, I've pounded on this guy enough and he just gets up and walks out of the cage. The crowd goes nuts. It's like, you know, they just won the Stanley cup or something. Okay, so then after that, we always have two more matches, uh, and it I, I, it seems very strange how they are two or three more. It seems strange how they do this. Like sometimes they'll have a good match on there. Sometimes there'll be a match where it looks like they're just trying to run everybody off. Uh, I, I, you know, I've always so. But in this case, we start off with Bobo Brazil against the. Is that the Gas House, Doug Gilbert? Yes, it is. Now, a couple of things. I talked about how long it takes to put up the cage. The cage doesn't come right down either. It takes 10 or 15 minutes to take that cage down. Please bear that in mind when, when as we discuss these two final matches. So you're waiting around to, for them to take these cage this cage down so that you may enjoy the two final matches. Go ahead, Sean. Yes, that was Doug Gasshouse Gilbert. By the way, two matches which lasted a combined total of less than three and a half minutes. Uh, okay, so the first one is you have Bobo against Gilbert. And if you've ever seen a Bobo match from this period, this is exactly what it is. Gilbert jumps Bobo. Bobo catches Gilbert in the corner with the boot, headbutt, headbutts. And then Gilbert Gilbert just does the Lou Albano finish for some bizarre reason. Except the just... Albano finish took more than 45 seconds. I mean, Gilbert jumps him, Bobo headbutts him a couple of times. Gilbert rolls under the ropes and, like, you know, waves his hands disgustedly at Bobo and walks back to the dressing room. Bobo didn't even get his ring jacket off. Well, I mean, why is there – would there be a reason for that booking? It just doesn't seem – it's Doug Gilbert. I mean, you can't uh, the... take a uh, pinfall to Bobo Brazil? Uh, yeah, he can't take a, a 60 second pinfall. I have no idea why they booked it that way. But in case anyone's forgotten, I always thought Doug Gashouse Gilbert was one of the oddest nicknames of all time. And about a year and a half ago, I was on the 605 Arcadian Vanguard podcast uh, baseball special, the 2018 preview. And I got to hang out on the phone with Kevin Sullivan and Brian Last for about oh, two and a half hours. And Kevin said that the reason in the way he got the nickname Gas House was because he was so 
nuked out on steroids that he was the first guy the wrestlers all knew, like no questions asked at this card. Even back then? Yeah, I mean, I would I would guess that superstar Billy Graham would have been the first guy to get that nickname, but apparently not. Were they doing anything with Bru- uh, Bobo here, or was just one of those things where Bobo was – because he was in a lot of these matches. He seems, you know, to, that that one right after the intermission. Uh, were they going to do anything with him here, or just one of those things that the fans like Bobo will bring him in for a shot? Uh, no, Bobo was a regular in 1976. Um, he would be gone probably by November-ish, um, and I just thought of something. But, yeah, he was one of the top baby faces. You know what? If I recall correctly, this just jumped into my head. I think maybe uh, a couple of months back, they had a match between Bobo Brazil and Doug Gashouse Gilbert that went to a time limit draw. So maybe it's just Bobo getting that drawback. I'm not sure. And our last match is Skandar Akbar versus Ivan Putsky, which I'm considering, I just guess, is a Greco-Roman classic. <laughs> oh, man. You know, Akbar, uh, and nothing against the guy. I mean, he gets a lot of credit for, you know, oh, I had this run in the WWF. I mean, he was... You know, he was managed by Fred Blassie at this time, but I don't think he ever got a title match against Bruno. I mean, he just wasn't a top guy. And I kept trying to remember, is Putsky still in his uh, taking I, uh, Mighty Igor's bit or has he turned into the bodybuilder yet? He he's, he is morphing into a bodybuilder at this point. I have to admit, I know he stole it from Mighty Igor, but he is way more entertaining as the big guy eating a kielbasa. You know, in the middle of the ring, screaming, you know, him screaming Polish power as a you know skinny guy with like a 28 inch waist isn't exactly the same thing as that big. You know, I mean, what was the weight difference between the two when he got down to his lowest? He was like 225, wasn't he? Oh, I mean, he, he you know, when he got into his bodybuilder phase, he definitely he he slimmed down and he bulked up. I mean, he. But he was still, you know, not quite in the bodybuilder phase yet. And here's the okay, I checked uh, historyofwwe.com, which, by the way, I'd like to have their their guy on this show at some point. This was Doug Gilbert's first match at Madison Square Garden, so obviously I imagine that time limit draw. But wait, they brought this match back in October. <laughs> that's, that's incredible. Uh, so this was this was two two minutes and fifty one seconds. Um, I, I possibly I w- would have just preferred hearing Putsky sing the Polish national anthem, but um, it's basically mostly a headlock because I, I you really two and a half minutes we have to have a headlock. Uh, yeah, and the whole thing was crazy. I mean, the whole thing was crazy. It dawned on me after the fact that they had the you know the forty second match with Brazil and Doug Gilbert. In the Putski Akbar match, which was like two and a half minutes. So they had people hang around after the cage match for literally nothing. And speaking of literally, is, well, we actually, are, one quick uh, one quick question about that is um, were they coming up on the curfew? Was the curfew legit or was the curfew just a you they didn't want to pay union scale? 
the curfew was legit because they didn't want to pay union scales, so that might have had a lot to do with it. But then again, get the cage match out there a lot quicker. But yeah, we are literally out of time. I want to thank Sean Goodwin for him being my convivial co-host and all the stuff he does behind the scenes on the show. I would also like to thank our producer, Lou Kippelman, who makes this show listenable through his magic. And this has been a podcast of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast Network. Go Vols.